In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. The humble birth of Jesus changed the world. But what if it hadn't? What if we have here a narrative of yet one other person who was born only to live there 30 to 60 years and then vanished into oblivion? What would, what would the world be if that had happened? I think it's important to ask about what it means to have Jesus come, God come in the flesh, and what that means to the world and how it's changed the world because if it hadn't happened, I promise you the world would be a very different place. I think it's important for us to ask this question because uh, so many people live as if this narrative of Jesus' birth is inconsequential. As if the birth of Jesus didn't matter and didn't really change anything. Carl Sagan, uh, as uh, you probably knew him to be one of the more prominent atheists, said, we're all like butterflies who flutter for a day and think it's forever. Imagine a life where that is true, where that's all there is. You see, the humble birth of Jesus Change the world. We began talking about the birth of Jesus a few weeks ago uh, with Advent. What the reading uh, a moment ago reminded us that this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. And we began by highlighting God's promise that a Savior uh, would come who would make this broken world whole. God promised the people... Um, that people would belong to him and that he would belong to them. This promise itself faced overwhelming odds even in the very beginning when the promise was made to an old man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah. They were past the age of childbearing, yet God promised them a son. And miraculously, God provided a son as promised. And the promise continued. Would God ever come back to stay? This promise encountered moral problems too. You may remember a couple weeks ago we talked about King David with Bathsheba. It was King David through whom the promise of a king and a kingdom would one day come. 
he was anything but a poster boy for uh, a life lived for God. But instead, we recognize in the life of David that because of this promised king, God would forgive the sins of not only David, but of everyone who would believe. Forgiveness of sins is possible because God will come back to stay. Last week we were reminded that God remembers His promises. Even after a long period of silence when it looks like God's not paying attention, God will come back to stay. All of that and more point to the text that we get to this morning. And this, this morning... It looks innocent enough, and I suspect that you've read it before. One of the challenges of having to preach on Christmas Eve, Sunday morning, is that everyone has read this story at some point in their lives, I imagine. It looks innocent, and it even looks accidental. Ah, they were, had to go register, went to a different town, no room in an uh, inn, and had a baby. Yet it isn't innocent and it isn't accidental because the humble birth of Jesus changed the world. So let's start by looking at the world. And I want you to to think about this because it appears to me that Luke wants us to recognize this. In verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. What's the first thing that you notice about that? The first thing that you notice, well, probably should be the first thing that's there, right? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Luke wants to place Jesus on the world stage. First thing, that's what he's writing about. That's why he starts the birth narrative this way. Because we need to know a king is here that will compete with the king, the kings of the ages. And two, we need to assure, he needs to assure us that this young couple traveling hundreds of dangerous miles is not outside God's promise or care. You don't normally read it this way, do you? Normally you read it as some, you know, frosted window panes, twinkling Christmas lights, everybody on the edge of the seat waiting for presents, and you read about this decree from Caesar Augustus, as though that's part of the romance. I was going to say, if there was a decree somehow that forced you to leave your home and travel hundreds of miles so that you could pay your taxes? It wouldn't be that warm, romantic experience, would it? That's what's happening here. 
This promised baby is a world ruler set in the midst of world rulers. The first person we meet, in fact, isn't the baby Jesus. It's Augustus, the emperor. N.T. Wright points out, he says, by the time Jesus was born, Augustus had already been monarch for a quarter of a century. He was king of kings. He ruled from Gibraltar to Jerusalem, from Britain to the Black Sea. He had done what no one had done for 200 years before him. He had brought peace to the wider Roman world. But it was peace at a price. A price paid in cash by subjects in far-off lands. The cash from subjects in far-off lands the purpose of this decree. Then the next person we meet, again, is not the baby. It's Quirinius. Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius was once a soldier and the most, one of the most powerful men in Rome. Now he was a lieutenant and a governor on the edge of the Roman Empire, attempting to keep peace in a place that has known little peace really throughout its history. We have Augustus and we have Quirinius. We have this registration or this um, census. Some versions call it a census. What would be the purpose of that? The purpose of that, of course, would be uh, it would be, first of all, a measurement of the greatness of the king. Uh, if on social media, your likes on your post count for something, or your followers count for something, I'm telling you, they count for nothing. What you, what, what you really want are people that you can uh, command, travel, and register and pay their taxes to you. That's what would be really great. It was a measurement of his greatness. It was a measurement of how many subjects he had, how many soldiers he could muster, how much taxes he could raise. And so the story of Jesus starts with a nod to the emperor. One of the Remarkable things, and we miss this, I think, living where we live in the time that we live in. But the Roman emperor considered himself to be a god. Not only that, he expected you, his loyal subjects, to consider him a god as well. And we're thinking like, that's the weirdest idea. It was not. I traveled to Turkey this past summer and saw ruins of temples devoted to emperor worship. In other words, statues of emperors were not just because they were handsome. They, they made statues of themselves so that you would remember to whom you owed your allegiance and to whom you expected, from whom you expected blessing. In fact, th this does change how you read your New Testament, because the pressure 
that Christians were under in the beginning came from their unwillingness to go along with the charade that Caesar was God. And I just have to stop because we, we look at our world and we see all of these things that we claim are against us, against Christianity, and I just want to say blah, blah, blah to that because that's what it is. Christianity is born under an emperor who himself claimed to be God and it overtook the Roman Empire in less than 400 years. This is no small thing that Luke places um, Jesus' birth in the context of the Roman Empire, in the context of uh, political power. Then he goes on to tell us that he traveled to uh, a city of Bethlehem in Judea, the city of David. And so he connects for us a little bit the dots with the Old Testament and things that we've looked at before about the promise that God had made to the people of Israel, that God had made to David that there would be a king. And so here is our hint that what is happening now is that this couple, this pregnant couple traveling from Nazareth is coming and it has something to do with the king. But we knew that already, didn't we? Because we're placed in the context of Augustus and Quirinius. And now, Herod. Because Bethlehem fell under Herod's jurisdiction. It's hard for us to imagine how weird and evil Herod was. He was a Paranoid tyrant, worried that he would, constantly worried that he would lose his kingdom. He executed his, uh, two of his sons because he was afraid that they would take it from him. His sons, not his enemies, his sons. He built fortresses in multiple places to provide refuge so that he could run to if he felt threatened. He married 10 women and fathered 15 children by them. One of the most notable features of Bethlehem is that it is within eyesight of Herod's summer palace fortress called the Herodium. It was uh, really an architectural masterpiece for the time. It was both a fortress and a summer house with pools and all the things, gardens, places to protect uh, hundreds of people. It was built 15 to 20 years before the birth of Jesus. It's about three and a half miles southeast of Bethlehem. So that if you couldn't see it from Bethlehem, you could see, you could see it from the hills where the shepherds heard the news that Christ had come. 
And this imposing structure sat on top of a hill and rose uh, even higher. Mary and Joseph would have had to ride past it in order to get to Bethlehem. It was a symbol of wealth and power in a world of carpenters and shepherds. And Luke wants us to know this is the setting. This is the setting for the birth of the Messiah. Again, it's N.T. Wright who says, Augustus gave peace as long as it was consistent with the interests of the empire and the myth of his own glory. So there you have it in a nutshell, the whole ambiguous structure of human empire, a kingdom of absolute power, bringing glory to the man at the top and peace to those on whom his favor rested. And yes, Luke's gospel says, come and watch what happens now. This man, this king, this absolute monarch, lifts a little finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away in, obscure, in an obscure province, a young couple undertakes a hazardous journey resulting in the birth of a child in a little town that just happens to be the one mentioned in the ancient Hebrew prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And it's at this birth that the angels sing of glory and peace. And so we have the birth of Jesus set between, in a clash between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of earth. And Luke wants us to see this because this very account is the account of a dangerous little baby. This is why when Herod learned from the wise men about the king, he set out to kill him and slaughtered the children in Bethlehem. Had Augustus known, he would have done the same thing. I wanted to start here partly because that's where Luke starts. Luke starts by setting Jesus in the political milieu of the world. But I also want to start here because 2024 is going to be an election year. And you are going to be tempted to hope in Herod or Augustus. And Jesus promises you a better hope than that. You're going to be lured into trusting in princes. And I promise you the temptation will be there. Maybe you'll be fed up with the whole thing. You'll be tempted to overthrow the status quo. That was happening all the time in the area of Jesus' birth. But all of those things fade away in view of the birth of this child. As worried as Herod was that somebody would steal his kingdom, it's not his any longer. His jurisdiction was divided up and no one cares now. The Roman Empire is long gone. And who cares? Yet all around the world today, there are people honoring the birth of King Jesus.
This child, his mother, rode past Herod's palace to her husband's ancestral home. People still celebrate him. It's what the prophets said, prophet Isaiah said. In chapter 9, he said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think we tend to underread the story of the birth of Jesus. We treat it as a happy, family-oriented sort of fairy tale in which everyone lives happily ever after. And yet, Luke places Jesus in the center of the political environment of his day. And you, when you read the birth of Jesus, are reading of the greatest subversion in the history of the world. The government will be on his shoulders. And that is our great and glorious hope. And I think Luke wants you to know that because that's how he started the story. But that isn't all. That isn't all. He continues with the humble birth. It's the humble birth of Jesus that changed the world. We looked at the world. Now look at the humble birth, verses 6 and 7. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. These two verses capture the most important truth in the universe. God became man. It happened in the most humble and inauspicious way. Away from home, family and friends had no more room. They were put in with the animals. But God was there. This humble birth is important because it's, it's really, it's not, the, it's not the manger, it's not the animals, it's not the starry night, it's not all the things you sing about that change the world. What changed the world was the fact that this was the incarnation of God. That's a theological term that we use. It's perhaps the most distinctive doctrine in all of the Christian faith. That God existed forever in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that God the Son entered time. God the Son entered humanity. He stepped in to our world. The eternal Son of God entered time. The creator of the world stepped into his creation. God the Son who was writing history stepped into His drama. 
And we call it the Incarnation. It's God putting on flesh. That's what literally the word incarnation means. It means flesh, car, carne, flesh, in, in flesh. God came in the flesh. God the Son had always existed as God, but He was born in this moment as a vir- to a virgin named Mary after she traveled to Bethlehem with Joseph. God took on flesh. This is distinctive in the, the entire um, religious history of the world because in coming to be a human being as well as God Himself, He is not half God, half man. He is 100% God and 100% man. Neither His deity nor His humanity is compromised by their union. Now that might sound like more than you wanted on a Sunday morning. But I, I, I want you to realize, we're talking about the most significant event in the history of the world here. And the most significant event in the centerpiece of Christianity. And so why is this, doctrine, uh, this doctrinal point of the Incarnation so important? It's important because it is the way that God is with us. We've been talking these past few weeks about Emmanuel, God with us. Like somehow God mysteriously came and joined us, but the reality is that God joined, uh, God became a man, and that's how we have God with us. This baby born in this manger, wrapped in these swaddling claws, this baby joins heaven and earth. This baby joins God and man. All the things that the temple was supposed to do where heaven would meet earth, now this baby is the place where heaven meets earth. This is the way that God has come back to stay. God is with us, Emmanuel, because of the Incarnation. And I, I think it's worth realizing, because we just, I think from our vantage point, we take it for granted. It's Christmas. It's going to happen every year, ready or not. But God did not have to come. The Incarnation did not have to be. God could have remained aloof and distant and silent, But He came because He loves you and me. You heard this, in fact, you said this in the Advent reading a few moments ago. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It was the love that God had for this world this political world, this broken world, this poor, impoverished world, this angry world, 
God loved this world and he gave his only son. He chose to come into our world. The incarnation was an act of love from God. If you're like me, maybe you have this little voice that tells you, especially in the long, dark days of winter, right? That God doesn't really care about you. There is a little baby's cry here in this manger telling you he does. This baby is God with us. God joining heaven and earth. God keeping his promise. God governing the world in such a way to get a poor pregnant couple to the city of promise where the child could be born in the humblest of circumstances. This doctrinal point about the incarnation, this humble birth where God entered humanity tells us that God loves us and came to save us. One of the several hard things of this past year was that the uh, world lost Tim Keller. He spoke about Christmas and said, Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. You see, moralism is essentially the idea that you could save yourself through your good works. And if you could save yourself through your good works, that makes Christmas unnecessary. God wouldn't need to come. Why would God need to become human in order to live and die in our place if we can fulfill the requirements of righteousness ourselves? He goes on to say then, relativism is essentially the idea that no one's really lost. Everyone uh, can live by their own lights and determine right and wrong for themselves and find their own way. The all-accepting God of love many modern people believe in would never have bothered with the Incarnation. Such a God would have found it completely unnecessary. And so you have Jesus coming in flesh as the expression of God's love to humanity so that we might know for certain that we couldn't make our own way to God. That we would know for certain that God doesn't just make it okay to accept everything and everybody, but only those who come through Christ. Jesus came as an expression of God's love. That yes, in fact, He does want you to come. Jesus came into this world to save people who could not save themselves, that you and I might be reconciled to God and to one another. I began by reading Luke's account of Jesus' birth. Let me finish by reading Matthew's because it tells us, again, why Jesus came. It says, she will bear a son, 
and you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This humble birth in a stable in Bethlehem tells us that God loves us, that God is with us, and that this little baby is the king of the ages to whom everybody and every ruler will give account. It's my hope and prayer that he is your savior this Christmas. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we marvel that this even happened, that all of the circumstances lined up that the promise might be fulfilled just as it was made. We marvel that this even happened, that you being a God of love and mercy entered human life. that we might be reconciled to you and saved from our sin. That we marvel that God could somehow become flesh and dwell among us and we could behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of God. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect again on the beauty God becoming man, that we might have hope. Pray that you would grant us hope this Christmas season. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.